Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning. My name is Rob Heron, and I'm the assistant pastor here at Redeemer. And if you're thinking, since when? Since last week. And it really is, it's wonderful to be with you. And we've started a new sermon series that we've entitled Stairway to Heaven on the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. And these were the songs that God's people, Israel, sang together as they made their pilgrimage up to the holy city, to Jerusalem for three annual feasts. And we need as a church, to learn to sing these songs. We still need them to get stuck in our heads and our hearts as we make our way to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, to see God face to face. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 122. You can follow along in your bulletin or in one of the Bibles that's been provided for you in the back of the chairs. So if you would, read with me Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for the teaching? Father, ask that you would speak to us because you have spoken to us in your word. Make your word clear to us. Press it within us. Form us with it through your spirit. And by it, increase our longing for you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Every Sunday here at Redeemer, we, and I think I can say we now, but just barely, we, we love to acknowledge that there are so many other places you could be other than here. So many other things that you could be doing. You could be pouring on some sunscreen to go out to the Knoxville Rocket Club to grab your favorite seat by the pool. You could be practicing your stand-up comedy. You could be writing your memoir. You could be doing so many things. And obviously, I don't know exactly yet what people in Knoxville do on the weekends, but you could be doing those things. You and your dog could be preparing to compete in a dog show. You could be doing beekeeping or collecting sneakers. You could be doing parkour. You could be re-watching the Tennessee baseball game and cathartically breaking things. 
You could be doing those things. There's a seemingly infinite list of other things you could be doing besides what you're doing right now. Being here in this room in worship at Redeemer. In Psalm 122, it raises the question for us, why? Why be here? Why do this? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, so delighted that you're here, or if you are unsure whether or not you are because you're deeply unconvinced of the claims of Christianity, maybe that question hits you in a particular way. If Christianity is not true, then am I not at best wasting my time and at worst participating in a community, even an institution that I maybe suspect is oppressive, standing in the way of human flourishing? But for those of us this morning who are Christians, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God, and that he's come to reveal the love of the Father, the question still hits us. Why are you here? Why do this? Even if your desire is to know God, to glorify and enjoy him forever, to see him face to face, what does being here on Sunday mornings have to do with attaining those things? What if I often struggle to come here? What if being here I find myself at times frustrated or bored? What if when I'm here I often don't find myself drawing closer to God, but experientially it feels like I'm going further away? If that's the case, then wouldn't it be better for me to do any of the other things I could potentially be doing besides being here in this room at worship at Redeemer? But Psalm 122, it tells us there is truly nowhere better to be than here. There's truly nowhere better to be than right here. And I want us to help us see more clearly the goodness of being here by looking at two things from our text that are really framed by what we're doing here right now. We're going to look at one call and two response. So call and response to understand why there truly is nowhere better to be than right here. So first, let's look at the call. Again, we're looking at the Psalms of Ascent, and they're about going somewhere, so where are they taking us? They're focused on Jerusalem, where God's people in the Old Testament would go three times a year, making a pilgrimage up to the holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it wasn't the holy city because it was more impressive than Rome or Paris. It was holy because that's where the house of the Lord was. Uh, King Solomon, David's son, by the time of his reign, the house of the Lord would be the temple. But David, the author, he's being invited by others to go with God's people to God's house to join the other people of God that are scattered outside of Jerusalem to worship God together. And I think it's surprising when you notice the jump from verse 1 to 2. So you can look there. It starts with David being called to go with God's people to Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, he writes... Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It starts, let's go, and next sentence, we're there. It's like an invisible montage happened with the people walking to a survivor song, and then it just clips to them being there. And they're like, what amazing adventures we had on the way. Uh, David maybe is skipping ahead to the rival and skipping past the travel, but it's also possible that he's envisioning anticipating that great moment of arriving at the gates of the holy city. And if that's the case, it shows us how the hope 
of arriving at our heavenly goal when it captures our imaginations is absolutely essential to making the journey, to pressing on in the Christian life. But one thing that is clear about David's perspective on going to worship is that he's delighted to do it. So look at verse 1. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And our word glad it seems so thin. It, can, it seems to only glance across the surface of the emotion that David is describing here. His soul is filled to the brim with anticipation and excitement and joy at the thought of arriving to worship with God's people. And I think that can feel so disconnected from our experience of having to go to church. Let's say you slept in a little bit this morning and a spouse or a roommate or a child woke you up and said, we need to leave to get to Redeemer in 15 minutes. Your gut response is probably not, I was glad when you jabbed me in the ribs and you woke me up and you said, let us go to church. Our gut response is likely, why are you doing this to me? But David, he says, he is glad to go to worship, to be called to it. And why is David so excited? For David, it's really all a matter of what God has said. The house of the Lord is there. It's where God will meet his people. It's where he will pour out and provide his presence to them in a particular way. There he will bless them, renew them, and transform them. And he has said that he will do this. And these promises that he's made are reflected in, in the way Jerusalem itself has been built. So look at verse 3. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. The city itself is compact, like New York City or another urban center where building is attached to building. And so it binds together the different tribes of Israel. And so David is glad to go to Jerusalem because down to its very architecture— it displays and proclaims God's promise to bring to himself one people and to unify them. These promises are also reflected in the fact that the king's throne is there. So look at verse 5. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. God promised to rule his people to the kings of the line of David. And so for God's people, the hope of justice, the hope of righteousness— the hope that one day things will be made right, it flowed down from the holy city. So God's people, they went to worship and to hear the judgments of God's appointed king. And so why is David so overflowingly glad to go to church? It's because God is there. And his promises are proclaimed and displayed uniquely here. It's a beautiful day in Knoxville. I think it is. And let's say a friend invites you that this afternoon. Let's go out. And you say, absolutely. I've been craving throwing the Frisbee around. Where should we meet? And your friend says, let's meet at Crutch Park. Is it pronounced Crutch? Crutch Park. And you say, great, to go somewhere else. And they say, no, let's spend the day at Crutch Park. And that confuses you. This park next to Market Square and you're a little bit concerned about your friend because this is not a slam against Crutch Park for any fans out there, but it's small. There's not room to throw a Frisbee around. There's no jungle gym. There's no skate park, no gazebos. It's not that impressive. It's not that impressive. But let's say your friend calls you this afternoon and says, and they're out of breath, says, in 15 minutes, Dolly Parton is going to play a surprise concert at Crutch Park. 
You wouldn't ask any further questions. You would be on your bike in two minutes with one shoe on to scramble to get there. Crutch Park has its limitations, its lack of shine, but all that matters is that Dolly said she's going to be there. And when has Dolly ever not delivered on a promise? Amen? Amen. We are called in a very similar way, entirely similar way, to worship here because God has promised to be here. We're called to worship here because God has promised to meet us here. Christians are inheritors of this song. Inheritors that have been brought into God's promises that are met with a huge yes in Jesus. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has brought what the temple was, the house of the Lord, to greater depths in his body. And in him we have full access to the presence of God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we have been made members of God's household. United to Jesus, the church has been made a temple for the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God's presence. And so God has promised that when we gather together, he will meet us here to renew us and transform us, to bless us. And his promise is the key thing. It's either true or it isn't, right? If he, if he hasn't promised to meet us here, then it doesn't matter how enjoyable or engaging our worship here is. It's all empty. But if he has promised, then we can be honest. There really are so many other places you could be than here. So many other things you could be doing than, than being here that would be more immediately satisfying than this. And I love what worship is at Redeemer. I'm too new for you not to hear me say that. I love it. But it's not that great. It's not that impressive. Proof, I'm not that great. I'm not that impressive. And yet, there is nothing better for us to do than to be here this morning because God promises to meet us here. And his promises are uniquely displayed and proclaimed in our worship together. And God is up to something here. Uh, Beyond our grasp or understanding, God, through our worship, is forming us in the direction of his goal for all things. The church's worship is the rehearsal for our identity, our life, and our hope. It's the rehearsal for our identity, our life, and our hope. In our worship together, you could say we are liturgically rehearsing. We're acting out the script of who we are, what we're meant for, and where we are going. And we do this not because we only need once a week to worship. We do this because we are always worshiping. Worship is the main thing that we were made for. And worship, praise, adoration, devotion is the accurate response to who God is. But as Sean said last week, our hearts are idol factories, constantly attaching our ultimate praise and devotion to things that are not God. Every day in every part of our lives, we are being taught to worship things that are not God, false gods, and so oppressive gods. You can say that we are always at all times even being liturgically invited to act out a script that tells us that who you are is who you make yourself. Your identity is something that you achieve. 
that, that tells you that the good life is about self-actualization, about becoming more and more independent rather than becoming part of something that is bigger than yourself. We are at all times, when we go to work, when we wake up, when we absorb content or entertainment, when we scroll, when we prepare to go to sleep, we're going to be invited to act out a script that tells you that your hope has nothing to do with some distant God. Because after all, what has he really done to make your life better? This is happening all the time when we don't even know it. But when we are called together here to worship the God revealed in Jesus, we are being invited to act out the true story. James K.A. Smith, an author, he writes that worship incorporates us into God's story, which then becomes the script for our lives. We bodily here rehearse our identity together. We remember that we were lost, but we were found by a pursuing God of infinite grace who defines us by his love. We remember that the good life is being a part of his story and being with and united to his people. We remember that the hope that we have is not some uncertain, unsure thing. We are standing in the gates of the new Jerusalem because Jesus' kingdom has come and it is within us and it is among us in part and one day fully and finally. He is establishing his justice and the best is yet to come. This is the story that our worship invites us to remember and to act out and to be emboldened to live out in the rest of our lives. So that's the first thing. That's the call to worship. God calls us to worship because he meets us here to remember his promises and to rehearse the true story. And because of that, it's not only good to be here, there's nowhere better to be than here, truly. So let's look at the second thing. See, in the call, let's look at the response. So David and the other pilgrims, they're called to go to the house of the Lord. How do they respond to the, the call to worship? Well, first, they respond by going. They make the trip, but they also invite one another. It's not primarily an individual trip where they all just end up there and say, funny seeing you here. It's a pilgrimage they make together to be together. But also, second, they respond by delighting to go. It's not drudgery. It's joy. It's a joy to go to the house of the Lord. And they act out that joy, David sings in verse 4, by giving thanks to the name of the Lord. The Lord's name, it encapsulates his goodness, all that he has done for his people and that he will do. So worship is a delight because our God is the source of all delight. Worship is good because our God is good. We get to worship this God because it makes us alive. And so the response of worship is just by its nature an act of gratitude. The second, they do it by delighting to go. And third, the response to the call is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So look there at verse 6, starting there. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. David responds, and he invites us to respond, all of God's people, by praying for the holy city. Pray for its wholeness, its security, its peace. Why pray for Jerusalem? 
Because as we've seen, it's the place where God's promises are attached to. But, but David, he answers that why in a, a kind of unexpected way in verse 8. Where he says, for my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. He prays for the peace of Jerusalem exactly because that's where his true family and friends are going. He loves God's family, and so he prays for the peace of the city. It is, he, he sings these final words in verse 9, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, that I will seek your good. His response to being called to worship is fueled by love for God, but also love for his brothers and sisters. And this, this speaks to the how of responding to the, the call to worship to be here, but it most importantly speaks to the why. Why would we be here? We respond to the call by going and inviting, delighting and giving thanks, and praying and seeking the good of the church for the sake of the family of God, for the sake of one another. We come here to worship because God loves our worship. We come here to worship because God loves his people. Why be here? Not because I feel like it. Not because everything here meets my preferences or I am going to be immediately fulfilled and satisfied. And not because coming here makes God love me one ounce more. I come here not for anything based upon me. We respond instead in worship together because we love each other. And why do we love each other? Not because we feel like it, not because the church is filled with people who are especially lovable. No, proof, see me. We love one another because God loves his people. God has graciously poured out his love into us. And if we are learning and enjoying his love, then we will begin to love what he loves, which means we will love the church. And if we grow to love the church, then we will join in its worship. And in, in that way, as we join in the church's worship, we will find that there truly is nowhere better to be because we're with God's people and God loves his people and he loves their worship. We won't be able to help but love what God loves. I think we know from experience that the things that we love are so intertwined with what other people love. We love Tennessee football because our dads or our moms love Tennessee football. I love southern food, not just because it's yummy and delicious. I love it because my grandmother, whom I loved, she loved it. And she perfected it. I've been thinking recently about my favorite comedies, movies. If you ask me what they are, I can tell you that I love them. But I have this experience recently when I try to go and watch them. They may get a few chuckles out of me, but I have these entrenched memories of crying, laughing, watching them with friends whom I love. Because it's so hard to separate the things we love from the people we love. And that doesn't make what we love less authentic. It's just the way things are. And it reflects the way God has designed us. He's designed us to love him, to be full of his love, and then to learn to love what he loves. Which I think shows us coming to worship will be our delight, not to the extent that it's impressive, 
Not to the extent that it matches all of our preferences, but to the degree that our hearts are being shaped by the love of God. As his love shapes us, we will delight in what delights him. And what God, what delights God the most, besides just being himself, is his people's responsive worship. But we experience the church's worship, and we probably find it underwhelming. We may wish that the music were louder or softer, faster or slower. We may likely wish that the preacher were a better communicator. We may come here and find ourselves bored and tired and frustrated, and then frustrated and angry and tired that we feel that way. What changes our experience in worship is not working to just feel differently and not just changing our preferences. What changes our experience in worship is the truth that God delights in our worship. And if that captures our imagination, how can we not grow to love it? God delights in our worship with our shaky voices and imperfect notes, coffee breath, annoyances, Our shaky and creaky knees as we stand and sit, God delights in our worship. Mumbling and grumbling as we come, God delights in our worship. Why? Because Jesus is our priest and our king who has in himself offered up himself perfectly to the Father and now brings our worship perfected in him to the Father. God delights in our worship because of Jesus and because he loves us. And he delights for us to do what he made us to do, which is to worship him. For us then, we respond by coming and delighting to be here because we're learning to love what God loves. But really more to the point, we're learning to love one another. We respond to this call to worship by loving one another And also, our response here and worship together is the chief act of worship. On the one hand, our worship here, what we're doing right now, it's completely vain if we do not love one another. What good is it? What sense does it make to worship alongside someone that God loves and sent Jesus to die for and then to hate that person? No, authentic worship, it invites us, it compels us to love one another. And at the same time, Being here together, worshiping together, is the chief act of loving one another. Again, it's not the only act, but our our response to love one another, it begins here. Because it's here that I learn and I remember that my identity, it's distinct, but it's never separate from who you are. I learned that who I am is always joined to who you are because we are both defined by the kindness of our Redeemer. When we confess our faith together, I remember that I belong to you and you belong to me because we belong to God. We share one faith, one Lord, right? When we are here, I rehearse the reality in our confession of sin that I need you and you need me because we both need Jesus desperately. It's here that that we remember that the good life is not elevating myself to find myself, but losing myself to seek your good, to then find Jesus who gives himself to me, the good shepherd, 
the good life. It's here that I remember that the hope that we have is not one of isolated individuals who are just, just happen to be there looking at God's face. But the hope we have, we're told in Revelation 7, is of a united people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God, worshiping him, saying salvation belongs to our God. Our response in worship praying together for the peace of the church, pleading for God's kingdom to come, it orients us to our highest good, which is to be God's redeemed people together. People who together are a sign that we will one day face God face to face when he makes all things new. And they'll go together, together gazing at his face and everything being made just and right. So what response is Psalm 122 calling us toward? Being here, delighting to be here, and seeking the good of one another here. But let's not oversell the importance of showing up. Showing up isn't that important. Showing up here does not justify you, does not add an ounce of value to you before before God and in his eyes. And if that's the case, Showing up or not showing up cannot in any way change our commitment to love any and all people that God puts in the way of this church. And yet, let's not undersell the value of just showing up. Because here in this room, when we stand and we sit and we sing and when we speak, we witness to the kingdom of God that is here and it is coming. When we speak truth together, you love me because your voices urge me to hold on to God's promises when my faith is so weak and so frail. And when we sing together in this room, our hearts are being tuned to the melody of the gospel, the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ for sinners. So being tuned to it here, we might go out and in some way fill every inch of creation with its sound. Showing up isn't that big of a deal, but what could be more powerful? Why is there nowhere better to be? Not because you and I will have our longings fulfilled and satisfied here, but because it's here that we begin to desire and long for what we're meant for. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her groom, the day when we will meet the God that our hearts long for, when we will see one another face to face without shame, and when perfect worship and perfect righteousness will be as natural as breathing. We come here to be beautifully disappointed, to have our hunger increased, our longing increased for the feast in God's kingdom that is coming, and to our great surprise, in part, is already here. And that brings us to this table. Here at the table, we learn to hunger rightly. Here at the table, we are most truly and fully who we are as God's God's people. We are beggars, needy and hungry without money, and yet we are guests at the banquet table of the highest king. We have nothing to give in response to his invitation, and yet all that is required is to come, to eat, and drink, 
be drawn into communion with the Father by Jesus and drawn into communion with one another so that we might in worship learn to be who we are together, the church.